Heavenly Father, we come to Your Word asking that it would speak to our hearts. You are able to say to us just what we need to hear despite the human words and the frailty of human listening. Would You speak into each of our lives as we open them to You this morning? For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Created then to be like Christ. That's the goal of your life and mine. And it's been like that from the very beginning. That's always been God's desire for us. If you're using the outlines that uh, you may have been handed at the beginning of the service, this verse is uh, at the top of, uh, of those verses there. From the very beginning, God decided that those who came to him, and he knew who would, should become like his son. There has always been a determination in God's heart to create people like himself. Remember way back in the Old Testament when we read about God creating the world, He made man and woman, male and female, in His image. He was making us to be like Him. That's always been the goal in God's heart. And when we messed it up so catastrophically, God didn't give up. He still had in His heart to make children of Himself that were like Him. And so Jesus came that we might be adopted into his family as we heard about last week. But what does it mean for us to become like God? It does not mean that we will become God's small g. You might wish it would, but sadly it doesn't. God's not interested in you trying to be a God. In fact, he's quite opposed to you attempting to be a God. What he's looking for is people that are going to be godly like him in character, like him in the way that they think, like him in the way that they act, like him in the way that they feel, like him in the values that they hold, like him in the character, the moral character by which they live. God wants to make us like him. And that's the third purpose, that we might grow up like Christ in everything. Evan who is eight weeks old, is dead cute. And you'll have to admit that he's the cutest baby, if ever there was a baby at the moment. Uh, He's just on a par with all our other children for cuteness. You will understand that when I say. And there may be some flicker of moments when we think, wouldn't it be lovely if he could stay just like that? But as soon as we say it, we know how illogical, in fact, how narrow-minded, and how actually, how wrong that would be. We want nothing more for him than to stay like that. and We want him to grow from where he is into the person that God wants him to be. Babies are cute. If they stay like that, there's something very wrong. And and in our Christian lives, there is that same calling for us to grow up into Christ. Let's not grow older without growing up. So the third purpose is to become like Christ. And the question is, how do we do it? Or perhaps more importantly, how does God do it? How does God help me grow up as a Christian to become like Christ? How do I grow spiritually? Well, there are some obvious answers that we know all too well. 
we would immediately say the Bible helps us to grow up. As we read the Bible, God's Word has power not simply to educate us, but to change us. And if we're serious about growing as Christians, then we need to be serious about God's Word. Obvious way number two would be other Christians, learning from them, uh, praying with them, encouraging them and receiving encouragement from them. Uh, Some of the things we were talking about last week, the challenge that they bring, help us grow up as a Christian. And maybe we could think about some other obvious ways in which God uses his word, people, other things to help us grow and become more like Christ. This morning, though, we're dedicating our time to look at three ways that God uses to help us become like Jesus that are not so obvious. In fact, they are ways that we often think God can't use at all. They are ways that sometimes we think are outside God's purpose for our lives. But we're going to look at them this morning and see how God uses them, though we might not expect him to, to help us become more like Jesus. And this is the key verse for us this morning. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not in most things or in some things, but in all things. God works for the good of those who love him. And what's his purpose? Well, we already read the next verse, Romans 8, verse 29. It's the first verse on your outline. His purpose is that we might become like Jesus. So in all things, God works for the good of those who love him in order to help them become like his son, Jesus Christ. In all things, God is working to help us grow up to become the Christians that he wants us to be. So what does all things include? Does it include the painful things in my life? Does it include the disappointing things in my life? Does it include the mistakes that I've made in my life? Well, actually, yes it does. All of those and more. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now we need to be careful as we read this verse because it's another one of those verses that in itself is very liberating but it's so easy to twist it ever so slightly so that it ends up saying something it was never meant to or intended to say. In fact, it ends up saying something that isn't true and brings us into spiritual bondage rather than spiritual freedom. The liberating truth is that whatever goes on in my life, all those things I don't like, all those things I regret, all those things I wish weren't there, the liberating truth is this, that even in those things, God will work out his good purpose. Hallelujah. But, we must be very careful not to twist that truth, to make it say something it doesn't say, which leads not to spiritual freedom, but to spiritual bondage. You see, this verse, firstly, does not say all things are good. All things are clearly not good. Most things are bad, not good. And that's why under the sovereign guidance of our loving Heavenly Father, this bad world's passing away and a new heaven and a new earth is on its way. Hallelujah. Because all things are not good. In fact, most things are far from good. So it doesn't say all things are good. And it doesn't say all things come from God. In pastoral ministry, sometimes I hear the thought expressed that God sent sent whatever it is that has happened and that somehow God knows best 
and he sent this bad thing, and if, he, if we could just understand the way God thinks, we would understand that this bad thing really is a good thing, because it came from God. Absolutely not true. Find somewhere in the Bible about God sending bad things. God does not and cannot send things that are intrinsically bad for us. If you want to know what God wants, if you want to know what God thought was best, then go way back to the world that God created, that was perfect, that was wholesome, where man and woman were in deep, intimate partnership with one another because they were in deep, intimate partnership with God. That's God's best. That's what he wants. All this mess that you and I experience from day to day, God never, ever intended it for us. And that's why we're looking forward to that new day. What God wanted was that place where there would be no death and no disease and no divorce and no destruction. That's what God wants. When tragedy comes to your door and mine, it's not what God wanted for us. It's not God's way for our lives. He set his way for us, most clearly and most straightforwardly, in the way he spun this world into being. Tragedy was not part, then, of the way that God made this will to work. But what this verse does say, what this verse does say very clearly, is that God, in his love and in his infinite wisdom and in his wonderful grace, will use the bad things that he never intended for this world, that he'll use those bad things to bring out some good, even though they were never designed to be like that. You see, there are three things you can be absolutely certain about when trouble and trial comes to your life. The first thing you can be absolutely certain about is that God will take you through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Does it say that you stay there? Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, you can be absolutely certain that what you face God will take you to the other side. He may heal you, he may sustain you, he may do it in 101 different ways, but he will take you to the other side. The second thing you can be absolutely sure about is that God will be with you in the midst of it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. In fact, it's been those dark valleys where some of us have known God the closest and the greatest in those dark moments. Thirdly, you can be absolutely sure that walking through dark valleys is not the way it will always be. This is earth. Heaven awaits. And then fourthly, you can be absolutely sure that even though the dark valley is dark, God will use it for his good purpose. And that's where our focus is. How does God use dark things, difficult things, painful things for his purpose? purpose. And in particular, how does God use dark and painful things to help us grow as Christian people? So, three unexpected tools that God uses for our development. And notice as we begin, they are three things that Jesus himself faced. This is not a theoretical God telling us how it might work out. This is a God who's done it and been there ahead of us and for us. He faced, Jesus, trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane. He faced temptation in the desert. He faced trespasses, the wrongs of others on the cross. And the question to ask ourselves this morning is how Christ-like will I be when I go through the Garden of Gethsemane? 
How Christ-like will I be when I'm in the desert of temptation? And how Christ-like will I be when I'm facing the wrongs of others? So number one, here we go. God uses trouble to teach us to trust him. God uses trouble to teach us to trust him. And there are spaces there on the outline if you're using them. Now it doesn't matter if things are great in your life. It doesn't take any faith to live a life when things are all hunky-dory. That doesn't take any character. It's why our troubles, that's why our troubles and our difficulties are the moments of growth in our lives. It takes no character when it's going well. It takes a lot of character when it's going wrong. The bumps, as the book on my shelf says, are the things that you climb on. So we know that troubles produce patience, and patience produces character, and character produces hope. Our characters are built in times of difficulty. And God is far more interested in our character than in our comfort. We wish it was the other way around, but God is far more interested in our character than in our comfort. Our holiness rather than our happiness, and so on and so forth. That's why in every problem, in every difficulty, God is looking to help us build our character. It's not God's problem. He didn't send it, but he knows how to use it. And when Jesus went through troubles and trials and so on in his life, the greatest, of course, being the one where he was crucified, He knew what it was to face difficulties day after day after day. He had people in his face, people pushing against the flow of his life day in, day out. And the intensity of that weighed upon him. Yet, he went from strength to strength. And as he comes to the final moments of his earthly life, the Bible paints the picture of him being in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible paints a very clear picture of a real choice that Jesus had. As Jesus prayed in those moments to his Father, it seems that he had a real choice. Would he trust God with all that was about to happen through the following 24 hours? Or would he walk away? And that's the struggle that we read about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he took his disciples with him to the Garden Actually, it was a, a, a grove of olives, and there the Bible says that he was under some intense pressure that was crushing uh, his heart. They came to a garden called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Notice that Jesus needed friends in times of trouble. That's the small group all over again. Notice that he needed fellowship at his moment of crisis. He was looking for others to stand with him in his moment of decision. You guys would just hang and pray here while I go yonder. And, uh, and that's what he was looking for. And then we see the anguish, the distress that came over him. The sorrow in my heart is so great that it almost crushes me. And we understand, perhaps not anything like to the extent that Jesus was facing it, but we understand that phrase, I'm crushed by what tomorrow might bring. We understand what it is to wake up in the morning thinking, I've got no idea what's going to happen today. I, 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 I can only imagine how awful it will be. It's already crushing on my heart and on my spirit. 
I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through today. Look how Jesus responded. Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will, not mine. This is an important lesson, I think, when we face difficult situations. You see, Jesus was honest with God, and it's okay, surprisingly, to be honest with God. Jesus was not pretending that the next day would be easy. Jesus was not pretending that in his humanity he was embracing it wholeheartedly as if it was a walk in the park. He was honest about the way that it was uh, coming upon him and crushing his spirit. Yet, yet I'll still go. I'll still go, God, with what you say because your way is best. Not my will, but yours. And if we're going to become like Jesus, that building of our character, it is in those moments when the heat is really on, when the future looks terrible, when we say, I feel like I'm dying here, I'm sinking, I'm going under, it's in those moments that we can say, God, I'm going to trust you. I do not understand what tomorrow will bring. I certainly don't like what tomorrow might bring, but I'm going to trust you all the same. God uses trouble to teach us to trust him. And it can be why, it can be why people can sail along in their Christian faith, and then when trouble comes, it all seems to unravel. And people around them find a surprise and say, their faith seems so strong, how come it unravels so quickly? Well, the real test of the strength of our faith is not when the weather is fine, but it's when the storm comes. When the storm comes, who do you trust? When the storm comes, who do you turn to? That's why in moments of trouble, God wants to build our character. Joni Erickson Tada, you will know, is a a well-known Christian writer who uh, in her late teens dived into a pool that was too shallow. Her head hit the floor, she broke her spine and has spent the rest of her days uh, in a wheelchair. And um, I can remember an occasion, I forget whether it's live or written down where where this is from, but she was asked by a journalist or somebody, uh, because she's spoken a lot about how God's used her trouble and used her trauma and, and how she knows God in a very special way because she's learned to rely on him because of the tragedy that came to her life. The journalist said to her, if you knew what you knew now, would you still have dived into that pool? Yes. Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Tip number one for surviving troubles might be for you a spiritual journal. It's a really good discipline. Many of you write a diary. Try writing alongside it a spiritual journal. A diary is about what you do. A journal is much more about how you're feeling and what you're learning. Spiritual journal, what's God teaching you? And you can see how through the difficulties in your life, God is building your character. But remember this. Remember this. Remember that this is not all there is. Let's get our troubles into some kind of perspective. And the moment I say this, we are in danger of being hugely insensitive to the huge traumas that we face in today's world. And I understand the huge traumas that we face. And so in that sense, there is nothing uh, glib or, or shallow about these statements. 
But somehow those people who knew God really well, like the Apostle Paul, who had suffered in huge ways, said, I've come to understand this. I've come to understand that what I'm facing now, it seems so huge, it seems so overwhelming, but in the light of all that is to come, it really is not that great. It really is not that great. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I love this verse uh, paraphrased in the message. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times and the lavish celebration prepared for us all. God wants to use our troubles to build our character. He wants to use times of temptation to teach us to obey. To teach us to obey. What's temptation? Temptation is the pull on our lives towards something that is wrong. It's intended to harm us. Temptation is not there for our good. It is intended to drag us down, to trip us up. Satan is the mastermind of temptation. He is the tempter in the Bible. Does God tempt us? No, the Bible's clear. God does not tempt us. Satan tempts us. His intention is to hurt us. His intention is to push us off God's given course for our lives. God doesn't tempt us, but God uses those moments of temptation because of his greatness and because of his power. He uses those moments of temptation to build our character even more. Because temptation, and we often think of it, or most of the time think it, as an opportunity to do something that's wrong. Temptation is an opportunity to do something that's right. To do something that's right. I think uh, uh, Rick Warren writes quite helpfully in one of the chapters this coming week about this very issue. Temptation is designed by Satan as an opportunity for you to do something that's wrong. God leaves it there to build your character because it's an opportunity for you to do something that's right. And when I choose for God in that moment of temptation, I have unraveled the power of darkness within me. That's why that choice develops my character. Jesus faced temptation, but he never sinned. Right after he was baptized, we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, if Jesus faced temptations, guess what? Yeah, yeah, not, no, no big deal that we might. No surprise that we might. You and I are going to face temptation because he did. You might hope that one day when you are near perfect, that you will not face temptation. Jesus was perfect, and he still faced temptation. Facing temptation is what it means to live in this fallen world. But remember this. It's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to sin, but it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus never sinned, yet he was tempted. And stop feeling guilty, therefore, about being tempted... Because that's what Satan does. If he can't get you to sin, he'll make you feel guilty for being tempted to sin. And some of us need to understand the liberation in our minds that actually being tempted is being tempted. Succumbing is the sin. Succumbing is the sin. Your responsibility is to flee from temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. 
And remember too that everybody's tempted in kind of the same ways. You feel particularly bad this morning as a Christian because of the way that you are tempted, because of the thoughts that go on in your mind. And we think, Craig, I must be the worst person in the whole wide world because these temptations are coming. You could, I don't suggest you do, but you could tap the person on the shoulder next to you and ask them, because they've probably had exactly the same thing too. Satan tricks us into believing that the temptations that he brings are the terrible ones that are just for us. We're in this together. We're in this together. And every temptation is an opportunity for us to do good, to make the right choice. A stepping stone towards being more like Christ. And so Jesus said, get out of here, Satan. The scripture says, worship only the Lord God, obey him only. Obey him only. Temptation is a test of our love and obedience to God. When the temptation of money comes, what do you love most? When the temptation of comfort comes, what do you love most? When the temptation of greed comes, what do you love most? So on and so forth. Obedience is choosing to say yes to God, not out of, not out of a matter of duty. If you live your Christian life out of a matter of duty, it will be an incredible uphill struggle and you will find it very hard to live in victory. It's not out of a matter of duty but it is after a matter of love. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. If you love me, obey my commands. Out of love for him, we do what he says. Keep focused then. When temptation comes, how do we fight it off? Keep focused on, on good thoughts. The Bible says, fix your thoughts on what is true good and right. You see, because temptation always starts with getting your attention. It starts in your mind, or it comes in through your eyes. That's where it begins. And if you focus on temptation, there is something almost inevitable about it. If you focus on temptation, you will probably, almost certainly, succumb to that temptation. Some of you are proud of your multitasking capabilities. But you cannot focus on temptation and focus on God at the same time. And here is a tip. Again, I think this is uh, expressed maybe slightly differently in the book, but, but a, a helpful one this week. Here is a tip when temptation comes. You see, what we're inclined to do when temptation comes is to resist it. Now, don't resist temptation. Hang in there, let me say the whole thing before you write that down and say, Simon says, don't resist temptation. When you're tempted, don't resist it. Because as you resist it, what are you focusing on? You're focusing on the temptation. There's this cream cake on the table here, and you would love to eat it. I'm trying to resist it. No, I am going to resist it. No, I'm not going to eat it. No, I'm definitely not going to have it. What are you thinking about all of the time? cream cake on the table. What's likely to happen? You're likely to eat it. Absolutely right. Once you start thinking about it, you can almost guarantee that you will succumb to it. You are not that strong. And neither am I, with the greatest respect in the world. 
We are not that strong to look at temptation, to focus on it, and not to succumb. Don't resist it. Just drop the rope. Don't resist it. You're pulling with Satan. He'll probably beat you in those moments because he's got your focus. He's got your attention. Walk away. Don't look. Stop looking. Take the cream cake somewhere else. Get it out of the way. Whatever you do, don't focus on it. Don't linger with it. Some of you struggle with stuff on the internet. It's that first click that gets you. Walk away from it. Drop the rope. Don't have a tug of war with temptation. It will beat you almost certainly. Don't linger for a moment. Whatever it is, walk away. Don't resist it. You understand now what I mean. And then the, the greatest thing, apart from that, that you can probably do to, to, to diffuse the tempting things that come into our lives, and that's to get yourself a spiritual partner to tell someone about it. To tell someone. It's the most horrifying thing, probably, you might think I've ever said to tell somebody about your deepest, darkest, most difficult temptation. But it is one of those things that will diffuse it much quicker and more effectively than most other things. Tell someone about it. Will their jaw hit the ground because of what you said? If it does, they're bluffing. Because I bet you they felt like it too. No, they won't. If you have the guts to say something honest about what's going on inside you to somebody else who loves Jesus and longs to walk with him, they will understand exactly what you're talking about. And to have somebody else accountable. You see, as long as it remains in the dark, as long as it's a secret, Satan's got you. Secrets are not clever in the Christian life. He's got you. But as soon as it comes into the light, when somebody else knows, when you're accountable... It makes a big difference. Troubles teach us to trust. Temptations teach us to obey. And then finally and quickly, God uses trespasses to teach us to forgive. What do we mean by trespasses? Well, I'm thinking of the phrase in uh, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those wrongs that have been done to us. God uses wrongs that have been done to us to teach us to forgive. And I guess being a a forgiving person is one of the greatest marks of being like Jesus Christ. It's also the most difficult, difficult tool of all that God uses to make us like his son. Being hurt by others without retaliation, is without a doubt the most difficult step, I think, to becoming like Jesus. Often involves being misunderstood, often involves being criticised and being judged, being hurt maybe physically, emotionally or verbally. Now let's be clear, let's go right back to the beginning. These are not good things. These are not good things. These are wrong, even evil things that might have happened to you. You said if you knew what had happened to me, you'd never be saying uh, any of this. And, And maybe not, but God knows what's happened to you. And they were wrong things, and they were evil things, and they should not have happened to you. But God now wants to use them to help you become the person he wants you to be. God hates the sin and the pain that you have been caused. But we see in Jesus the supreme response. We see in Jesus on the cross that he not only carried our sins, 
but he endured an enormous amount of torment and insults from those around him. They shook their heads and they hurled insults at Jesus and the elders made fun of him. Even the bandits who'd been crucified with him insulted him in the same way. And what was the Christ-like response? Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they are doing. The route to freedom. Always the route from, to freedom for the things that have hurt us most is forgiveness, is forgiveness. And sometimes we long to be free from the pains of, of things that people have done to us and the way that we've been hurt. And we're clinging onto it tight and we wish we could be free of it. Freedom comes with the courage and the strength to forgive. The courage and the strength to forgive. And Jesus leads us in that and he gives us the strength to do that. They called him every name in the book and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, intent to let God set things right, it says in 1 Peter 2. He yielded his right to get even. He absorbed the hurt, he put up with the pain, he responded to evil with good. That's what he did. The crux of becoming like Jesus is to forgive like that. See, the truth is in life you're going to get hurt. This isn't heaven. We wish it was, but this is earth. Everybody sins. You hurt other people and other people hurt you. We hurt others intentionally and we hurt others unintentionally. How you respond when other people hurt you is probably the single greatest mark of what being like Christ is really all about. Jesus was at pains to repeat at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And remember that bit in the middle he's saying about forgiveness. If you don't forgive your sins, it, it just hangs on. It messes up your relationships with God and with each other. Trouble is you can't learn forgiveness in a classroom. Forgiveness is not theoretical. You only learn to forgive once you've been hurt. That doesn't make the hurt a good thing but it does make it an opportunity for God to do something good in your life, both in terms of building a character and in helping you walk towards freedom. A couple of tips along the way. Remember that God has forgiven me. Remember that God has forgiven me. Do you know, if you're trying really hard to forgive someone today, I'm going to ask you to stop thinking about them. Stop thinking about them. Decide in your heart you're not going to think about them for a day, a week, maybe a month, whatever it takes. And instead of thinking about them, think about a cross outside a city wall where Jesus absorbed in his dying body everything you'd ever done wrong. That's how ugly and horrific your sin was and mine. I guarantee you that if you look very carefully at Jesus, when you go back to look at that person you're struggling to forgive, you will see them differently. If you do that with an honest and open heart before God, that will bring healing to your soul. Look to the one who has taken our sin and our hurt upon himself. And remember, above all, that God is in control. You know the story about Joseph? And Joseph was beaten up by his brothers and sold down to Egypt. And then in Egypt, he got all kinds of trouble with Mrs. Potiphar's wife. And then he was in jail. And it all went terribly wrong. 
for 10, 15, 20 years. All that seemed to happen for Joseph was that it was going wrong. It felt like God had forgotten and God had abandoned him. And then eventually his brothers turned up and, uh, and Joseph, with, the, uh, with godly wisdom and with godly insight, says to his brothers, you know, you meant to hurt me. What came to me was intended for my harm. But God has used it for good. God turned your evil into good to save the lives of many people. You're struggling to forgive. Remember that God is in control. And he writes the end of the story, even though the beginning was not what you or he had planned. Jesus went through all these things. He went through the Garden of Gethsemane, the trouble there. He went through the desert of temptation and he faced the cross of other people's sin. And if you walk with him, he'll take you all the way to glory. But you will stop off from time to time in the garden. And you will sometimes go through the desert. And you will sometimes face the hurts of others. And that's what we're to expect. Because we go through exactly what Christ goes through. And if we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him too. Hallelujah. That all things, as we trust him, will be redeemed. And one day, and one day it'll be over. It'll be finished in the fuller sense of that word. Let's pray. Lord, you know what we need in our hearts, each one of us. And so we just spend a moment in quiet to make our response to you. Lord's